This is an ABC podcast. June the 4th, and the Office of Iran's Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, issues the following official communique via Twitter. Our stance against Israel is the same stance we have always taken. Israel is a malignant, cancerous tumour in the West Asian region that has to be removed and eradicated. It is possible and it will happen. And the response from the Israeli embassy in Washington? Well, they tweeted back a gif of a blonde-haired girl rolling her eyes. Why are you so obsessed with me? A tweet, a gif and the Hollywood hit Mean Girls. The art of international relations certainly has changed. Hello, Anthony Fennell here with part two of our look at diplomacy in the 21st century. Who's your biggest competitor, your biggest foe globally right now? Well, I think we have a lot of foes. I think the European Union is a foe, what they do to us in trade. Now, you wouldn't think of the European Union, but they're a foe. Diplomatic Uh, challenge number one. Keeping up with the politicians. Well, I think the biggest change is an unfortunate one, and that is an emphasis on speed. And it's not just social media, but really in the era of live television, for example, everything has to happen very quickly. And diplomacy, just to to make a generalization, you can say that fast diplomacy is often bad diplomacy. Philip Sieb from the University of California. He also wrote the aptly titled book, the future of diplomacy. Diplomats, particularly when the diplomacy is being conducted at at the higher levels by people who have political concerns that transcend normal diplomatic concerns, there's a tendency to try to cater to that audience, to be more political than diplomatic. There is a distinction between the two. And I think the rise of social media fosters that kind of behavior. Consider, for example, the recent negotiations between the United States and North Korea. As that went on, there was such a a huge amount of pressure to conform to the demands of the news media instantly and to, to tweet results of what was going on. And I'm not sure that that contributes to a uh, substantive diplomacy. Air Force One coming in for a landing in Havana at Jose Marti Airport there. A historic uh, trip by a U.S. president, the first U.S. president to touch soil at this moment right there in Havana, Cuba, in 90 years, along with the president. Diplomats will continue to have an important role behind the scenes and often out of the public view, regardless of what the political leaders are doing. A good example was the negotiation that went on in 2015 between the United States and Cuba. That was done entirely in secret. And if it had been public, if the it wouldn't have worked. There would have been outrage from various political forces, and President Obama would have had to just probably abandon the whole process. So there are still times when that quiet diplomacy is going to be the most effective form of diplomacy. But overall, says Professor Sieb, the nature of digital life is pushing international relations further into the public arena. It used to be that diplomacy was a matter of government to government. With public diplomacy, particularly using new media tools, governments can reach out with great ease to the publics of other countries. Social media, for example, 
is a tool that many governments are now using to make their case, to define their narratives to global publics. And this is a two-way process, isn't it? Those politicians and also diplomats are also open to suggestions or comments from the public, aren't they? Well, they have to be open, and and some of them don't particularly care for that. They resist that. But if you're going, it, it's a two-way street. And so, if you want to be able to reach publics, you have to be willing to respond to them as well. What are the implications of that transition across to a more public form of diplomacy? In principle. It sounds like a great idea. It's a sort of a democratization of diplomacy. But the danger is that it speeds up the process too much. And there is an expectation now that everything's going to show up on Twitter or everything's going to show up on YouTube. And so diplomats have to decide the extent to which they want to embrace these new technologies. I think it's important not to become overly enthusiastic about the wonders of new communication tools and realize that to some extent they complicate the processes of diplomacy. Today, Air Force One reached Finland. This final stop in Helsinki follows days of Trump-style diplomacy that left close U.S. Sarah, I'm going to jump in because we're getting pictures now of what's called the family photo here at the G20. And any of you watching who are body language experts, we need your help on this because all of the leaders are gathering and everyone is watching this very keenly. There's Justin Trudeau, you can see Prime Minister Modi from... So the expectation of public openness and involvement in diplomacy is increasing. And so too is a desire for spectacle. Caitlin Byrne runs the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. Summits have been around really since millennia, but probably until about the middle of the 19th century, we didn't see them happen very often. It was quite rare for political leaders to actually engage face-to-face. A whole lot of reasons for that. Travel time, logistics, security, venue sensitivities. But more recently, and particularly in the last couple of decades, we've seen summits take on a bit of a life of their own to the point where political leaders today really have their diaries booked out well in advance, you know, a year or two in advance because they have to make time for the summits that come up in the international arena. And even if you're the, say, Prime Minister of a middle-ranking country like Australia, you're going to be attending a lot of summits, aren't you, in, in any given year? Absolutely. So we tend to see the Australian Prime Minister take part in the summit season for this part of the world towards the end of the year. So we're coming up now to the East Asia Summit, APEC, ASEAN, ASEAN Regional Forum. There'll be the G20. There's usually a Pacific Islands Summit. So we really do see nations engage in all sorts of summits. Often there will be an emphasis on their region. And so that will make a difference to the calendar, but they are absolutely a key part of the diplomatic agenda. What's their value in terms of international diplomacy? Mm. I think it's important to see political leaders come together. They often have the authority to make decisions that professional diplomats don't have. So that can be, in some cases, a circuit breaker on really difficult issues. The other thing is that there's a public dimension, and increasingly this is important for us today. For public audiences to see leaders actually shake hands can have a great deal of significance. It can bring public opinion along, and it can build momentum for agreements that might not otherwise happen. There is sometimes, though, a sense in which the participants in these big global summits are playing to a home audience. Mm. And and that's very different from playing to an international audience, isn't it? That's absolutely key. And I think this is one of the real tensions that sits between politicians in their diplomatic role 
and professional diplomats, career diplomats who often operate behind closed doors. They operate official to official. Their audiences are much more confined, um, whereas for political leaders, they may well be on the global stage, but the audience they're really trying to impress is their domestic audience at home, the one that elects them. Now, you've been a diplomat in a mm. previous life. What do the diplomats, the professional diplomats, what do they think of the value of summits? I think there's enormous stock put in summits. Um, you know, we've seen in particular, for example, Australia's role in the G20 has had a positive impact. I think on diplomacy, it's it's widened the diplomatic agenda. So we've seen not only officials from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade engaged, but also from finance, from treasury. We've seen civil society engaged in the discussions around the edges. So that's been an important part of widening that conversation, engaging people in the dialogue of nations. But I think there's also, for some diplomats, you know, a real concern about what will happen when political leaders come together? Will they make decisions that undo years of, of diplomatic work behind the scenes? Will it uh, be a success or won't it? And you never quite know what might happen in that space. Is there also a concern that sometimes the summit might be seen to be the outcome? Absolutely. And a real sense or an expectation, particularly again from the public audience, that this is the answer. In diplomacy, there's no magic form there are no silver bullets. It is often a painstakingly slow process of dialogue and negotiation that happens over long periods of time. Summits can be really important circuit breakers or milestones in that process, but they're certainly not the end game. Well, we have some of the dumbest leaders in the world. We have losers. We have losers. They're losers. They're just losers. We have very stupid people. We have stupid leadership. Rocket Man should have been handled a long time ago. <laughs> Little Rocket Man. Diplomatic challenge number two. Adjusting to the new language of international affairs. Rory Medcalf from the ANU. Having been trained as a diplomat, I think one learns very well how to offend and insult in such a way that the other party doesn't perhaps realise the slight. It doesn't work quite that way in the fairly crude world of the way some leaders interact with one another. I'm not sure that it's so much a communication response that our diplomats have to worry about. It, it's the material realities that follow from some pretty sudden impulsive messages that leaders tend to communicate, whether it's via Twitter or other forms of immediate media. If you imagine, let's say, the world of 1914, and I'm not saying that uh, diplomacy did us any favours in 1914. In fact, the origins of the First World War were in many ways a failure of diplomacy to keep up with the technology of the times. But if you imagine other periods in history where I guess the mass populations in different countries could at any time instantly follow the sparring, but also occasionally, I guess, the more accommodating language that their leaders would communicate to one another. It's fascinating to imagine what impact that would have had on international relations and on history. So we're entering really uncharted waters here, and this can work for good or ill. I mean, you can take the view that whether it's Trump or anyone else, that a leader making a sudden U-turn on a policy via Twitter can somehow 
inadvertently or maybe deliberately have some positive results for international stability, but more often than not, the results are going to be destabilising and unpredictable and our foreign ministries have generally not been trained or equipped to manage the damage. We've really seen some extraordinary language on the diplomatic stage, particularly in the last few months. And when you think about diplomacy, diplomacy is a craft that really revolves around the use of language, but it's a different style of language. It's the, the sort of language that maintains relationships between separate political communities. So it's all generally, it tends to be about smoothing off the sharp edges, maintaining relationships in times of enmity as well as friendship, creating possibility. So the language that we've seen of late, the language that tends to be used by political leaders in their diplomatic capacity, has been much more jarring, shocking, undiplomatic, if you like. And we are seeing that language reflected or mirrored in the, the statements from diplomats as well, aren't we? I mean, I'm just thinking of Nikki Haley, the US ambassador to the United Nations, who recently described the UN Human Rights Council as a cesspool of political bias. Mm. Uh, Mike Pompeo, the uh, Secretary of State for the US, mm. recently talked about Iran having an assassination operation in the heart of Europe. Now, those kind of comments, that's not the sort of language that we're used to from democracies particularly. Well, I think the other thing to remember is these are political appointments and so they have a political agenda and that comes through in their language. And I think you can contrast that to professional or career diplomats who are part of the public service who probably wouldn't speak necessarily with that sharpness of language. But I do think we are at a point where we we see the language replicated, mirrored and amplified as well through media to a point where it starts to be seen as normal. And there's some danger in that. In the public imagination, diplomacy in the past was really conducted, I guess, between nations, between mm. nation states. That's changed significantly in recent times. There are a lot more players involved in international diplomacy these days, aren't they? What are the, what are the implications mm. of that? It's a really crowded landscape. So it's certainly not the exclusive domain of the state. We now see multinational corporations, we see NGOs, we see individuals, you know, celebrities even, who can actually influence the behaviour and the thinking of a wider group of people engaging in this space. And that's really interesting. The recent foreign policy white paper produced by Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, for example, talks about this shifting nature of foreign policy and diplomacy and actually talks about the new role for partnerships. It's not actually that new a role, but it is a role for thinking beyond the federal government, for example, thinking beyond our federal government agencies and looking at who else can really play a role. I would say cities, for example, are the new diplomatic actors and they, they carry enormous influence. They are right at the forefront of a lot of the key issues in global policy today and I think they are going to be playing a much greater role. And of course, on this program, we've talked in the past about the uh, the growing number of mega cities mm. in the world, these monstrous cities of anywhere above 10 million people. When you've got that sort of size and that sort of power, you naturally will have an impact, won't you, on things like international relations and diplomacy? Absolutely. Particularly when you're thinking about the issues that cities have to deal with, sustainability, delivery of services, welfare, social welfare, housing and homelessness. You know, these are all issues that are increasingly important on the global agenda. 
I think the other thing with cities is that they're much more closely connected to people. And so there's a greater opportunity to influence the way that people live, behave, interact from that city perspective. So it is an important actor that that federal governments, that nation states can actually draw on, engage with and bring into this diplomatic sphere. Diplomatic challenge number three. Where to from here? Well, there's a much bigger question about what a modern foreign ministry, what a modern diplomatic service actually is. And look, I would caveat this by saying that there are many brilliant, educated, experienced, hardworking people in the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade or really pretty much any other foreign service. They're usually a pretty elite organisation. However, the times have changed and these days almost every government official from any agency that has some contact with the outside world, and that's pretty much everyone, is to some extent a diplomat. So in a sense, diplomacy has been democratised right across government and indeed beyond government, into the private sector, into the community, into the media and so forth. So it's not only the diplomats that have to respond to the convulsions in the international system that come from leaders being empowered to conduct their own public messaging in real time. But where diplomats do have to respond and perhaps be retrained is, I guess, both a new kind of multi-skilling. I think for a long time in diplomacy, the public-facing side of things, public diplomacy, media relations and so forth, was treated as a, a poor cousin. It was treated as really an inferior and a less substantive kind of work than the you know, the true policy work of being a bilateral desk officer or dealing at a high level with a foreign country behind closed doors. That's not the case anymore. And in fact, often the more consequential stuff is what's happening in the public domain. So we do need diplomats that are trained and empowered to be very active in contemporary forms of media. And there does tend to still be a pretty strong risk aversion to how diplomats everywhere engage on social media. But we also need diplomats who are empowered in all kinds of other ways. For example, to understand the complexity of a lot of the contemporary issues where technology is becoming such a big feature of the future uncertainties in the world. And that's a tall order, isn't it, for uh, somebody who's been trained as a diplomat in the traditional sense to take all of that on board because there's an awful lot in there, isn't there? There is, and I I suspect in an organisation like a foreign ministry, you're going to need both a highly skilled and agile pool of generalists and also some new specialisations because, in fact, there are specialisations not only to do with international law, but also to do with new technologies and the new issues around which diplomacy is going to have to uh, come to terms, where really years of technical knowledge and technical training will be just as important as those classic diplomatic skills of communication behind closed doors with your diplomatic peers, of negotiation, of compromise, and of being able to analyse and understand the dynamics in foreign countries. And are we seeing that kind of change going on, and not just in the Australian context with the with Australian foreign affairs, but in the uh, foreign affairs departments of other countries? Are they adjusting? 
Look, I would say there is some progress. I mean, it's notable in the Foreign Affairs White Paper uh, here last year that the government emphasised both uh, the investment that it's made in training, for example, through the the Diplomatic Academy, but also through organisations like my own uh, National Security College, but also a renewed emphasis on really skilling diplomats in analytical techniques, in being able to understand changes in the world really to analyse as well as simply to observe, report and describe. And in foreign ministries around the world, I think there is some of this greater emphasis on new forms of education and skilling underway. I guess I'll just emphasise that there's a cultural shift that has to occur. Diplomats have to be comfortable with learning new skills and also comfortable with the fact that they're no longer the elite that they once were, that officials from many other government agencies and indeed actors from other parts of society are just as internationalised, sometimes even more so, as they are. Rory Medcalf from the National Security College at the Australian National University in Canberra. And before him, Caitlin Byrne from the Griffith Asia Institute. You're with Future Tense, RN's intersection of culture, science and technology, exploring the edge of change. I'm Anthony Fennell. In by Griezmann and to Frederick. Oh, Lloris was caught on it by Mandzukic. Lloris with a moment of madness. Mandzukic perhaps a moment of redemption. It is France. It will be some can-can on the Champs-Élysées tonight. And so football's greatest prize headed for Paris. But there was another big World Cup winner this year, and that was Russia. Before I got to Russia, I had no idea what to expect. Media outlets were painting a picture of a dark land filled with people with an old world closed-minded mentality. But things are starting to change, especially with the youth generations. We're using music, football and art to help push the country forward and connect with people across the globe. Associate Professor Stuart Murray is a specialist in sports diplomacy at Bond University in Queensland. The Russia case is, is absolutely fascinating. If you think back even just relatively a short period of time, the, the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics, and Russia was beleaguered by uh, so much bad press about anti-LGBT policies and allegations of corruption and graft, and many of these, these problems that was associated with Sochi. And for some reason, there's been nothing of that ilk associated with uh, 2018 football games. Uh, so that, that in itself is a very interesting case study. But Russia has done it very, very differently. What they, they did with Sochi and what they've done, very quiet diplomacy with, uh, with the, the 2018 World Cup. It can also, can also backfire, I must admit, as well. If you think about the 2010 Commonwealth Games in India, these were sort of uh, public diplomacy disasters, if you can imagine. The, the athletes' village wasn't ready. The organisation was terrible. So the, the prowess of, of India was certainly... Uh, not forthcoming in that example. So I think nations are starting to, to think about mega events in, in particular, about how they can project culture, their soft power messages. And, and again, this sort of uh, just quiet diplomacy, not as, as ardent as, as was the case with Sochi in 2014. And that includes the Australian government, which now has its own sports diplomacy programme. So the idea is that you tap into already existing international networks of sport and the Australian clubs, if you think about clubs and, and sports people and sports players, 
there already is an international relations system of sport. So the government's really just sort of tapping into that and trying to realise areas of synergy. We all sort of do the same thing in the international space with sports. So there's a lot of repetition, a lot of duplication, maybe by thinking about it a bit more strategically, by codifying it into the policy, uh, by creating a doctrine, which the sports diplomacy strategy that was launched in 2015. And that's that's what that attempted to do. We're getting there. It's taking a little bit of time, but if you think about the scope of Australian sport and you think about the scope of Australia's foreign policy, it's a big piece of work to, to try and get through. What is it that countries can get out of involving sport in their diplomacy? If you think about diplomacy as a, as a means to a foreign policy end, sports diplomacy is a, a means to a means to an end, if you can imagine. So if you think about it again in the, uh, the Australian context, one of the, the foreign policy pillars is to create influence in the, the Indo-Pacific region. So that's a key goal of Australia's foreign policy activities. So the question is, what role does sport play in achieving particularly that goal? So Australia's invested heavily in what's called the Pacific Sports Partnerships. We've put a lot of money and effort into building sporting relationships with India, for example. Sport simply builds bridges between strange nation states. It creates informal opportunities away from these sort of staid negotiating venues. And with all business, if you can imagine, in the, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, the, the relationship must be built first before the formal diplomacy occurs after that. There is an old saying that you shouldn't mix politics and sports. <laughs> uh, so there are a lot of people who, who won't like this idea of sport playing a greater role in international diplomacy. Absolutely. And th- this is, I think, a rather cliched opinion, to be quite frank. Cliched meaning it's uh, overused and, and trite to the point of being quite annoying. And that's simply because sport and politics have always mixed. They've mixed since time immemorial. Sport was used as a, a way to, to sublimate conflict, um, not only between disparate groups of people, nations and states, but within a city-state, for example. So sport, if you think about it in the ancient context, was always co-opted by politicians uh, through to ancient Egypt, through to the ancient Olympiad, of course, uh, Rome, the medieval Europe, industrial uh, Europe as well. So there's there's always been a close correlation between sport and politics. It got particularly spiky in the 20th century when sport became a, a vessel for ideology. It was tarnished with the brush of fascism. <laughs> I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that sport and politics perhaps shouldn't mix. This is an ideal statement. Um, they do mix. They mix all the time. So we need to study it, understand it, and and maybe try and get calmed down the nationalism aspect of international sport being co-opted by states. But again, this is something that's, that's changed dramatically in the past 14 or 15 years. We think of diplomacy as a way in which the differences between states, the frictions, if you like, between states can be smoothed mm-hmm. over or reduced. And yet there is an aggressive side to much of our sport, isn't there? Does that aggressive side get in the way sometimes? It does, uh, Anthony, it does. And for a lover of sport and diplomacy, it can look like a bad example. Again, if you think in the Australian context, the actions of, of Nick Kyrgios, for example, um, sort of gave Australia a bit of a bad reputation. If you think about the infamous Tampergate scandal this summertime, this was a very bad look for Australia. But if you look at the the majority of sport that occurs, it's generally good for the the international relations system. And I I think the dark episodes of sport being abused um, or if there's cheating or doping in sport, it's sort of headline news, but it's certainly the, the exception rather than the rule. 
a very famous case in which sport was used as a diplomatic tool was the ping pong match between the Chinese and the Americans back in the early 70s. But we've seen, haven't we, even in recent times with cricket, for instance, where a sport has been used almost to to reset diplomatic relations between troubled countries. Absolutely. I think in the the 71 ping pong diplomacy case, sport was used as a vehicle to test if the public of both nations were willing to accept a policy shift, meaning that the US and China could get a a little bit closer. The cricket example you mentioned, Anthony, is another very good one where India and Pakistan, for example, they've had a lot of tension over Kashmir or or terrorist incidents in sport. They they play a game of cricket and the prime ministers turn up and it it diffuses tension in that relationship. Um, And then finally, the the biggest story of the last three or four months is very, very similar to 71 in ping pong, is the, the thawing of frozen relations between North and South Korea. The, the breakthrough came at the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. Leaders were seen sitting next to one another. Their publics watched it and everyone was OK with it. And then relations, uh, the formal negotiations um, began after these informal meetings. So it's, it's something that's, that's very positive. Always nice to end on a positive note. Sports diplomacy expert Stuart Murray speaking to me there from Scotland, where he's a fellow of the Academy of Sport at Edinburgh University. But he's normally to be found at Bond University on the Gold Coast. Now, in the spirit of maintaining good diplomatic relations with my Future Tense co-workers, let me thank producer Karen Sivanovitz and Dave White, our sound engineer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers.